We live in a broken world, and we are broken people. Where can we find healing? Nehemiah faced unimaginable challenges and opposition, and yet through perseverance and faith, he accomplished great things for God. Like Nehemiah, the difficulties we encounter may seem impossible to overcome, but God gives us the grace to accomplish what he calls us to do. Exercising our faith in God is the beginning of the path to redemption. Good morning, everyone. So glad to see you today. Uh, We've been this fall in a story in the Old Testament uh, that is known as the story of Nehemiah. So there's a book of the Bible called Nehemiah, and it's about a man named Nehemiah and how God works through this man and through the community of God to, to Uh, restore and revive and bring God's people back together. Uh, If you have your Bible, uh, take a moment, find the book of Nehemiah. If you have uh, a device, get to your Bible app and pull up the book of Nehemiah. We're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 5 here in a couple of moments. Uh, A lot of the things that God's people experienced in the Old Testament uh, in Jerusalem as the people of Israel the New Testament church experienced in the book of Acts as God's people. And it's also true that the things that they experience are things that we experience. So there's a lot of application of these verses and these passages to us. So last week, we saw how people returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls and to rebuild the gates. And we saw how there was, as there is with many projects, a huge leap forward. There's an energy, a, a burst of activity and industriousness and and God shows up and the builders flourish for a time. They learn how to work with a sword in one hand and a brick in the other. They weathered the opposition that was coming from without. You had Sanballat and the Horonites, you had Tobiah and the Ammonites, you had Geshem and all the Arabs, you had the Ashadites, you had all these alliances that started to form politically and locally to oppose the work of God overtly. And so uh, first, these enemies of God, they are displeased and they signal their displeasure in so many different ways. But when that doesn't work and the people of God don't take their cue, the enemies of God become furious and then it grows from furor to ridicule and disdain. And then pretty soon, all these people who were rivals to each other begin conspiring together Because they perceive the church, they perceive Israel in this case, as the greater threat. And they start spreading rumors and lies. And then they start threatening real violence and terror. We're going to be at this place at this time. We're going to do this. It's getting pretty gnarly in the story. But the people of God prayed. And we showed how as they prayed, God dealt with their enemies. So as they prayed, the Lord gave them strength. The Lord caused them to will and to act according to his good purpose, to to not grow weary in doing the good thing that they were doing. God gave them joy. And as God's people learned to keep guard and learn to build sword in one hand, brick in the other, the Lord confounded the plans of the enemy. He exposed their folly. He fought for his people. And the wall grew and reached half its height. These mounds of rubble being transformed into, miraculously, into this wall. And I think of this as a picture of the church, how God, again, he takes us 
And, and no matter what the, the chaos or the trouble or the disgrace or, or, or what mess is in our life, God can take the rubble and he can transform us into living stones and he builds his kingdom with us and through us. And when God builds something, no enemy can take a stand against it. You know, Jesus said, when I build my church, the gates of Hades, the schemes of evil, the devil himself, nothing will prevail against my kingdom. And we get a window of that in this story of Nehemiah. They encounter opposition. God guards them and fights for them. Now, I was thinking about the New Testament church in Acts. You can take the story of Nehemiah and the book of Acts and you can almost lay them side by side, almost chapter by chapter and kind of follow the narrative. And there's parallels, incredible parallels. For example, every time God's kingdom seems to like break out and begin to flourish and, and people get ignited with a love for God and a love for each other. Like every time that something great happens, some problem arises. So in the book of Acts, chapter 2 in Acts, 3,000 people come to the Lord. They get baptized and one day they get added to the church. The church explodes. But then what happens? The enemy from without begins to conspire. You had these Sadducees and teachers of the law and Pharisees and, and priests and all these political people. They begin to conspire against the church. At first, they're annoyed. Then they're furious. Then they use their political power to arrest the apostles and to threaten them. Later on in the book of Acts, they even beat them and abuse them because of the work they're doing. But then what does the church do? The same thing that the people of God did in, in Nehemiah, the church did in the New Testament. They pray. And when the church prays, God shakes the place where they're assembled. He fills the church with his Holy Spirit, his presence and his power. And the work continues to flourish. Same pattern. The apostles continue to preach with great boldness and power. Much grace was upon them. In the early church, as they did the work of the church... There was no needy persons among them because people who owned lands and houses, they would sell their stuff in order to bring forth their proceeds in order to benefit the community. Think about this for a moment, that in the first century as a church uh, flourished, people as they expressed allegiance to Christ, they would lose connections with family. There were relationships uh, husband and wife, sometimes within the family with siblings, sometimes uh, their economic situation, their work, you know, whatever the status quo was got disrupted. And so people's livelihoods, especially when the church was uh, flourishing and when it first was planted, people were affected in a very personal, economic, financial kind of way. The church had to kind of like look out for each other as they built the church. It's the same thing in the book of Nehemiah. There was a status quo. It gets disrupted. People refocus all their energies on the work of God but they were doing things that put bread on the table, all these different things. Same thing in the early church. They made the pivots that were necessary to look out for each other so that the church would continue to flourish. And so as they respond to the needs of each other, the church begins to flourish. As they responded to the needs of their opposition and prayed, you know, uh, God protects the church. In the book of Acts, Satan fills Ananias and Sapphira's heart with deceit. Here was this culture of generosity, and God brings two people, or Satan brings two people along who are filled with deceit, and they lie to the Holy Spirit, and they lie to the church. 
And so what Satan does is when his attack from without doesn't work, he raises up people from within. He did it in the early church. And guess what he does this week in our story of Nehemiah? He, he raises up people from within as his instruments to disrupt the work. Uh, in the story of Nehemiah, uh, you can imagine, uh, like a lot of times as a church, we think, okay, why is the church maybe not the compelling force in society that it used to be? And we think of all these external forces. So, and I've done this, you know, you, you talk about the big bad culture, you talk about the world, you talk about the Sanballats and Tobias and Geshems and political groups, the enemies of God, people that appear to be resisting or on a different page than God. But the greatest hurdles are always from within. The people of God themselves pose the greatest impediment often to the work of God. When Jesus prayed for his early church, he certainly warned the early church and us about external dangers. But what Jesus was most concerned about was the internal division. He was concerned that the church would remain united in love and, and that disunity would not tear the church apart, that people wouldn't begin biting and devouring and consuming one another and, and tearing apart the fabric of relationships of generosity within the community of God. Jesus said, make them one, you know, Father, as you and I are one. Let their love be evident to everybody. Listen to what unfolds in Nehemiah chapter 5. This thing arises that we commonly refer to as social injustice. Don't get hung up by that phrase. It's a very important concern of God, social injustice. Wherever you have a, a city or the people of God or a church, a marriage, a family, whatever circle, whatever social circle, injustice is something that God is very concerned about in every social circle, no matter how small or great, what the geography of it is, what the ethnicity of it is, God uh, is concerned about injustice. And so injustice begins to build up within the ranks of Israel. They withstand the attack from without, but injustice threatens to derail the work within. That's what Nehemiah chapter 5 is about. Listen to what Nehemiah describes. He says, there was a widespread outcry from the people and their wives. Now, when the wives get involved, you really need to pay attention and listen, right? Because you, you might be able to blow off another guy, but you can't blow off the women. I, the wives are outraged. And they have this outcry against their own Jewish countrymen. And some were saying, we are sons and our daughters are numerous we need grain so that we can eat and live. That is a tangible reality. And others were saying, you know, we've been mortgaging our fields and vineyards, even our homes, in order to get grain during this famine. Oh, there's a famine. There's a, a famine in the early church, too, that exacerbated people's needs. Life's happening. So there's a famine going on. People are trying to figure out how to put food on the table. They're doing this work. Still others were saying, you know, we've borrowed money in order just to pay the king's taxes on our fields and vineyards. We and our children are, are just like their countrymen, and their children are like ours, and we're subjecting our sons and daughters to slavery even. 
Some of our daughters have already become enslaved. We've, we've had to like hire them out in order to put bread on the table. And we're powerless because our fields and vineyards now belong to other people. You can imagine how desperate you get when you don't even have bread on the table. And people had gone to every measure in order to eat and survive while this wall was being built. You know, talk about being sold out to a vision. The sacrifices being made for the vision are unparalleled. You think of the early church, the sacrifices they made for the kingdom of God, uh, for the church to be born. You know, they were selling their livelihoods and all these kinds of things in order to, to, to facilitate the work of God. I mean, there's, there's something different going on in their minds than often the church today. But it's so ironic that the early church was hit by a famine. The people of God during this day were hit by a famine. And I think that one of the realities we deal with is that no matter what God's doing, life continues to happen. The world keeps turning right alongside God's work. There can be famines, there can be earthquakes, there can be calamities. There's things that Satan, uh, you know, there's a curse on the land. You know, Satan has a way of using problems that already exist to... uh, to be as obstacles to us. But there's no obstacle that we encounter that when we're united, we can't overcome. You know, a famine, we can survive a famine. We can pull things together and figure things out if we're united. We can overcome a famine. But when there's a deeper problem, not just the problem like a famine, but when there's a deeper problem of disunity, disunity is not so easily overcome. The people of God couldn't produce enough grain to stay alive. Their energies were completely devoted not to farming, but to building what God wanted built. Their money was running out. They began forfeiting their homes, their properties, their possessions. And worse, they're not just giving up possessions. They're giving up the means to replenish those possessions. They're not just giving up stuff. They're giving up their livelihood. When you sell your vineyard, your field, you think, you know, I've had to make big sacrifices this year. But there'll be another harvest I'll replenish next year. My vineyard will produce another crop. But when you sell your vineyard off, you know, you're not just uh, taking golden eggs. You know, you're killing the goose when you do that, right? And And they were cooking their own goose in order to stay alive. They weren't just benefiting from the eggs anymore. So to add insult to injury, the Chaldeans begin imposing burdensome taxes on the families. You know, uh, that's what political authorities do. They double down on the misery. When you're miserable, they double down on your misery. Like, we'll squeeze people even harder, you know. And that's exactly, you know, we can kind of relate to this story, I think, in some different ways, can't we? Parents were literally selling their children into slavery, not because they were cruel and mean, but because that's the only option they had. And they hoped that, hey, we'll redeem our children later. If taxes weren't enough... They imposed interest on top of the taxes. So there are certain Jews that came along and they were like, oh, you need $10,000? Just cash this check. I'll write the check right now. Just cash it. And in the fine print, it's a payday loan. There's 25% interest, 50%, some exorbitant amount. So there are certain Jews that are like, hey, I see an opportunity here. Jews were preying upon one another like vultures. They were levying taxes and tributes. They were cheating and lying and robbing each other. There's a scandal of integrity visiting God's people. You can throw it all under the banner of injustice, but people are doubling down on their cruelty in order to look out for their own interests. That's what's going on. And the same thing threatened the early church. 
But the community of God responded differently than the people of God in Nehemiah responded initially. The early church said, hey, we will flex, we will pivot, we will sell, we will do what's necessary to help each other out in the spirit of unity, in the spirit of the work, in in, in the spirit of glorifying God. The early people of God, they didn't do that. In Acts 5, it's interesting, the apostle Peter confronts a couple, Ananias and Sapphira, The devil uh, puts it on Ananias and Sapphira's heart to engage in deceitful financial activities in the early church. So here's this church flourishing with a spirit of generosity. The work is being enabled. Disciples are being added. There's great unity. Resources are distributed. Nobody's hungry. But the selfishness of this couple threatens to destroy the fabric of the early church. And that's what we have in Nehemiah 5, selfishness is threatening to destroy the building of this wall. So Nehemiah and Peter, there's a lot alike between these two guys. And also Jesus. You know, Nehemiah is almost like a Christ-like figure in a way because he confronts the injustice head on. Remember Jesus cleansed the temple? You know, he's like, we're not going to be exploiting our countrymen in the name of the glory of God or in the name of the work of God. No way, not on my watch. Jesus cleansed the temple. Peter cleansed the early church, he confronts Ananias and Sapphira. Nehemiah, chapter 5, verse 6. I became extremely angry, he writes, when I heard the outcry of the people and their wives and their complaints. I became extremely angry. You know, wouldn't it be amazing if we could align our anger with the anger of God? We get angry about the most frivolous and ridiculous and inconsequential things. And the really big things that we should get really stirred up about We just shrug our shoulders at it and say, well, that's just the way, you know. Nehemiah's anger is aligned with the anger of God here at the injustice. And after seriously considering the matter, which means that Nehemiah prayed and deliberated and sought wisdom from God, I'm sure it was a very distressing thing. Like, what do you do when your own are eating your own? Like, how do you respond And here's how he responds. He says, I accused the nobles and officials, and I said to them, each of you is charging your own countrymen interest. You know, he was willing to speak that last 5% of truth that most people just ignore. The last 5% is often the lion's share of the truth that needs to be spoken. And, And Nehemiah was willing to say what nobody else was saying. He was willing to say, there is an elephant in the room, and it's eating everything and leaving everybody, right, hungry. He confronts the nobles and officials. He says to them, you're charging interest to your own countrymen. And Nehemiah calls a large assembly together. And he names the problem. He tells everybody, I see what you're seeing. God sees what you're seeing. We hear you. He says, we've done our best to buy back our Jewish countrymen to redeem them who were sold to foreigners. But now you, the noblemen and officials, are selling out your own countrymen, and we have to buy them back. You're making the problem worse. They remained silent. They didn't say a word as Nehemiah accused them. And then Nehemiah said, what you're doing isn't right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of God and not invite reproach from our foreign adversaries? Now, I think that's still the core issue. Not just then, not just in the early church, but even today. The core issue is, do we walk in the fear of God? We make these personal calculations to get ahead at the expense of others. 
we usurp the, the reign of God, the, the agenda of God, the vision of God, of what he wants to build in order to advance self? Do we walk in the fear of God? Or do we invite the reproach of God's enemies? Uh, do we boldly root out the selfishness among us? Do we name it and confront it and, and, and do the work, right, that we need to do in our own integrity as a people? Or do we just kind of like ignore the elephant in the room? These are important issues for us today, whether it's in a marriage, whether it's in a family, whether it's in the church, whatever circle we find ourselves in. Nehemiah verse 10, Nehemiah 5 verse 10. Nehemiah says, even I, as well as my brothers and my servants, have been lending people money and grain. He was lending people money and grain. He wasn't charging the exorbitant interest, you know. Uh, He probably wasn't being exploitive, but he was part of the problem. Nehemiah didn't have completely clean hands. And and that's where it takes a lot of discernment on our part. It's like we, we see a problem, do we own our part in that problem? Nehemiah owned his part in that problem and even was willing to confess it to the people. He says, let's stop charging interest. Let's return people's fields to them, their vineyards, their olive groves, their, their houses, their means of livelihood. Let's return the percentage of the money and grain and new wine and fresh oil that we've been assessing onto them with, with taxes and tributes and use. Let's give it back. You remember when uh, Jesus reached Matthew, the tax collector? that Matthew became convicted and he paid back, you know, what he'd taken from people. And uh, that's the spirit of this thing. This is Nehemiah. Whatever you think a leader might need to embody, uh, creativity, problem-solving ability, the ability to adapt to challenges, to be serious, to deliberate, uh, to be bold, to speak the truth, to confront, to make sacrifices, to be humble and transparent. Nehemiah... He embodies everything that you would admire in a great leader. This is a great leadership story and text. It it stands alone that way, but it's even better because, you know, he's following God in it. I love how he takes responsibility. I've been part of the problem too. Let's make it right. Let's stop charging the interest. Let's give all this stuff back. In Nehemiah chapter 5, The people respond to Nehemiah's example. I don't think they just respond to his his words. I think they respond also to his example. And they say to Nehemiah, we will return these things and we'll require nothing more of our countrymen. We'll do as you say. Well, that's nice, but they're also doing as he did. I think a leader has to not just say things, he has to do things. And that's convicting for me to say that. But we've got to say and do, and that sets the tone. For the body of Christ, for the people of God. We will do as you say. So Nehemiah summons the priests. And he made everyone take oaths to do what they said they were going to do. He creates accountability. He has the priest come in. You know, you don't want to lie to a priest. Uh, You have to tell the truth to the priest. And he's saying, the priest is saying, are you going to make an oath to follow through on what you said? You know, there's a place for accountability in the church. You know, people have good intentions and they'll say everything that needs to be said. Leaders will too. But there has to be real world accountability. And the priests were brought in to bring that accountability. And what's accountability if there's no consequence? Nehemiah takes the folds of his robe and he shakes his robe, which sounds kind of weird to us. 
but he's using an analogy. And he tells them, God will shake from this house and this land everyone who doesn't keep his word, his promise. You say you're going to fix the problem, that you're going to be part of the solution, and you're going to honor other people and look out and have regard for them. But if you don't, God will shake you like I'm shaking my robe. And the whole assembly said, amen. They're like, we're good. And they praised the Lord because they wanted to honor God in their lives. And the people did as they promised. Now you're talking about what the early church did. They did as they promised as well. They did what was in the best interest of each other. And that's when God's people are at their best, is when the church is doing what's in the best interest of everyone and not just a few at the expense of the many. Now, the early church was shaken, not by, you know, a famine so much as they were shaken when God struck Ananias and Sapphira dead. That shook the early church. God rooted out the evil amongst them. And when that happened, great fear seized the whole church. And there was a time when no one would dare join the early church in Acts because of what had happened. But then afterwards, the Lord increased their numbers because people were generous and they were sold out to God and to one another. And when you have a people like that, the work flourishes. And so, of course, the church begins to flourish again in Acts. Multitudes of people came forth. Many people were healed. And uh, this extraordinary thing emerges. And in the, the story of Nehemiah, extraordinary revival is going to emerge here shortly. We're going to get into that in the coming weeks. As much as we, the church, might want other people to get their house in order, like we want the Senate to get their house in order, we want the judiciary to get their house in order, we want the president to get his thing in order, we want the Congress, the economy, Wall Street, you know, we got a list. As much as we think the biggest problem is that other people need to get their house in order, I'll tell you what the biggest problem is. The church needs to get its house in order. The people of God need to start with themselves and get their house in order. Jesus didn't say our biggest problem would be those we encounter in the world. It wouldn't even be Satan himself. Because greater is the one who's in you than the one who's in the world. We, as terrified as we might be by the political leveraging and muscle of the Sanballats and Tobias and, and whatever category of people or party or alliance or whatever we've identified, the biggest problem is Jesus said a house divided against itself will fall. That generosity and selflessness has to permeate from within our own ranks, our own marriages, our own families, within the church. Generosity and the the, the regard for others is the fuel that drives the work. And, and our biggest threat is, is when that's threatened. And that's why God acted so decisively with Ananias and Sapphira. He wasn't going to let that destroy his eternal kingdom, his church that he was building. Now, every few months, there's these cultural narratives that we become aware of as God's people, as Christians. But every couple of months, the narrative changes. So about the time we catch up with a cultural narrative or a conversation, the conversation changes. Example, take the word woke. If you say the word woke now, you've just self-canceled yourself. You know, the fact that you'd even use the word now, it's, it's so yesterday, right? So uh, about the time we started, you know, saying woke, it was already on woke to say woke, and the church became a joke. You know, it's that kind of a deal. You know what I'm talking about. So we were 
kind of getting weary of that conversation. But another conversation that's been going on, especially over the last couple of years in a very pronounced way, is the conversation of privilege. You're like, oh, don't bring that up again. You know, there's that word. And we cringe and it tweaks us, especially, you know, if you hear something like a rant about white privilege. I mean, that seems to be the tip of the spear in the conversation is white privilege, the way white people exercise privilege. And I have absolutely no problem with the conversation. I have no problem with people criticizing white privilege. I have no problem acknowledging that I, as a white person, exercise my privileges all the time. Whatever advantages I have, we leverage everything to our own self-advancement. Every single one of it. The problem I have is that it's not just a white problem. It's a human problem. And it's a human problem that cuts across cultures, across time. Uh, it, It hits every gender, every race. That's the problem I have is to make it exclusively a white problem. That's where you cross the line. But to point it out, okay, humility, confession, repentance, uh, all of us can be less self-interested and self-vested, right? In Nehemiah's story, who was exercising privilege against who? The Jews, who were of a different ethnicity, right? The Jews were exercising privilege, Jewish privilege, against each other. They were perfectly willing to flex their own privilege and power even to exploit, even enslave people of their own kind. Wow. And so that's the problem that you have of privilege in this story of Nehemiah. That's the injustice. That's what it looks like. That's what people are talking about when they bring up privilege or, you know, they used to use words of power or status or rights or entitlements. You know, it's the same problem, but there's different words being used to describe it. And and the conversation seems to be changing, but it's the same old problem. It's the same old conversation. And it goes all the way back, even into this story, way back into the Old Testament, thousands of years ago, that people, instead of surrendering privilege and power in service to one another, that people would enslave others for their self-interest. Jews do it, Gentiles do it, men do it, women do it, whites, blacks, Asians, Indians. You have a problem of crisis in the culture of famine, but human cruelty takes something that's already bad and exacerbates it. Human cruelty adds insult to injury, and that's what has to change. What's needed in our age, in the early church, Way back in the days of Nehemiah, what's needed in every age is people of every tribe, tongue, and nation for people to no longer conform to the exploitive pattern of the world, the privilege pattern of the world, the unfettered exercise of privilege to the utter disregard, even the demise of other people, that pattern, one of the oldest patterns known to man, the church, the people of God, of all people need to be a counterculture community to that that we need to be defined by generously letting go of privileges, rights, entitlements, advantages, resources, assets, because not just of the interest of others, but because of the interest of God. God's doing a work, and that generosity fuels that work. And God wants us to have a self-sacrificing mentality about each other and about that work. In the book of Acts... Another problem comes after Ananias and Sapphira. The Greek widows are getting neglected, but the Jewish widows 
are being taken care of. We got to address that problem. The church addresses it head on. They resolve the injustice, the inequity, and the work of God begins to flourish again. It keeps presenting itself in the book of James. People were coming as believers to take communion, and some people were going in first and taking care of themselves, and other people were being isolated or marginalized, and boom, they had to address that issue. The church should follow the pattern of Christ. Nehemiah is a kind of Christ figure. He follows the pattern of Christ. The early church embodied the ethos of Christ in the way they related to each other. Philippians 2, 1 through 8. If then you have any encouragement from being a Christian or being in Christ, if you have any comfort from each other's love, if you have any fellowship or walk with the Holy Spirit himself, if you have empathy as a human being, if you have mercy or compassion or affection for each other. Paul says, make my joy, that was a loaded thing he just did there. He says, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, being united in spirit, being intent on one purpose, doing nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, in humility considering others more important than yourselves, everyone looking not to his own interest but the interest of others, adopting the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. One of mind, one of spirit, one of purpose, uh, sacrifice, humility, empathy, looking out for each other, regarding. That is what the early church did. And that's what the people of God did initially in the story of Nehemiah. Had the same attitude of Christ. Well, what did Christ do? Well, Christ, existing in the form of God, he was God, he is God, didn't consider equality with God something to be exploited or taken advantage of or a privilege, this, that, or the other, what did Christ do? He emptied himself of that glory. He assumed the form of a slave. He took on human likeness. He became as man. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death and even to death on a cross. Jesus surrendered all the privileges of heaven, of the glory of God. He thought it better to become a slave than enslave or to make others his slave, better to die even on a cross, lest he invite reproach on the Father's name. Jesus shows us what it's truly like to walk in the fear of the Lord. And the question that we have to ask is, where is that ethos today for us? It's not unattainable if the people of God could attain it under the old covenant. Apart from the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God dwells in the church. If the early church could do it with the Spirit of God then what's our excuse? The Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, if we have fellowship with him, if we abide in him, where is the ethos of surrender that ought to flow forth naturally in that? That's what Philippians 2 is all about. Nehemiah relinquished privilege. Here's how he did it. Verse 14, Nehemiah chapter 5. He says, From the day that King Artaxerxes appointed me to be governor over the land of Judah... From the 20th year to the 32nd year, 12 years, for 12 years, I and my associates never ate the food allotted to the governor. Did you know that if you were a governor, you had a free ticket to the buffet, you know, uh, the, the chicken buffet over here, uh, chicken ranch, you, had, you could do that every day, all day long, all, as much food as you want. If you were the governor, you had that entitled to you. And the governors who preceded me, 
they heavily burdened the people, not just taking from them the food and the wine that they wanted, but they also took a pound of silver from the people. And their subordinates also oppressed the people. And so this is the pattern that we're talking about. People using their position, their status, uh, to double down on the pain and cruelty towards others. But because of the fear of God, I didn't do this. I hope that's something that's true of you. You could have, but you didn't because you walk in the fear of God. Instead, I devoted myself to the construction of this wall. I was of one purpose and one mind. I devoted myself to what God was building. And my subordinates, uh, they also gathered for the work. You know, sometimes the subordinates are just like smaller vultures gathering around the big vulture, right? No, he said, no, we're all working. And my subordinates are all working. Tell a lot by a leader by what his closest associates do. We didn't buy any land. There were 150 Jews and officials as well as guests from the surrounding nations that were at my table. We were, had an open table. We, we invited all sorts of people of diverse background. Like each day one ox, a choice sheep, six choice sheep, and fowl were prepared for me. An abundance of all kinds of wines were provided every 10 days. But I didn't demand the food allotted to the governor because the burden of the people was so heavy. What if we had leaders that recognized the burden of their people, instead of doubling down on it for self-advantage, actually emptied themselves of their privilege of status and used their power to serve? What a great pattern. Don't you think that would be revolution? The church has to set that example like Christ set. And we have to live into it. Nehemiah prays because he knows how costly this is. He says, remember me favorably, my God, and for all that I've done for this people. You know, do we do something because it's right? Or do we do something because we can virtue signal about it? Do we do something that's right because it's right, because it's pleasing to God? Or do we do it because we want to earn the applause and favor and we want to post about it and get all the accolades? Maybe it should be enough that we just say, God, you see it, that settles it. You see it, remember me even if people don't see it, even if they don't acknowledge it, even if they don't connect the dots, who cares? Why do we have to brand it and popularize it and boast about it and put it in everybody? Let's just be a people of integrity. Let's surprise people with our integrity. Jesus surrendered everything. Did God forget about him? Did the Father forget the Son? Philippians 2, 9 through 11. For this reason, God highly exalted Christ and actually gave him a name that's above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and even under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is King and Lord to the glory of the Father. God doesn't forget. He honors those who honor him. He doesn't forget what we do in the fear of the Lord. And I just want to leave us with this question. Where is that ethos of Christ? that surrenders privilege, that gives and sacrifices and serves and relinquishes rights and and lays hold of eternal favor. Where is that ethos today in the church? And could that be the reason that the church isn't flourishing as much as it should, as much as it did in Acts, as much as it did for the people of God in Nehemiah? Maybe our ethos, something that we see in the mirror, is the bigger problem than the opposition that lay without. May God bring us back to integrity, and may we lay hold of his favor by surrender. Let's pray. Dear Father, 
you are laying out a much different pattern for us that's foreign to our ears. And we pray that you would remind us of it, that you would cause us to will and to act according to it, that you would strengthen us to do it, that you would give us joy in doing it, and that your church would flourish because of our surrender, looking to the interest of others, not ourselves. We pray that a new ethos take hold. In Jesus' name, amen.